since feeling is first, who pays any attention to the syntax of things, will never wholly kiss you. Holy to be a fool while spring is in the world, my blood approves. And kisses are a better fate than wisdom, lady I swear by all flowers. Don't cry. The best gesture of my brain is less than your eyelids flutter which says, we are for each other. Then laugh, leaning back in my arms. For life's not a paragraph, and death, I think, is no parenthesis. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, the podcast taking a closer look at poetry. This episode's poem is Since Feeling is First by E.E. E. Cummings. This makes it a special episode, as it's the first instance of a repeat poet on the podcast. The last time we saw E.E. E. Cummings was on the very first episode, which is linked below in the description. And please forgive the audio quality. E.E. E. Cummings is a fascinating poet in terms of style, form, symbolism, and theme. He was often noted for his experimentation when it came to all the functions that I listed. So much so that often his work is more remembered for his experimentation than any real inherent poetic quality to quote one critic. I think when we condemn his poetry to the realm of pure experimentation, we do the poet a great injustice. His love of experimentation led to the creation of some incredibly complex and unorthodox poems. This generated a great deal of complexity, and because of this, his work at first glance can be quite intimidating for new readers. However, his poems are very finely wrought and crafted. They are poems that carry true emotion that strikes the reader hard upon first reading. It has been said that his work is nothing original in terms of theme, but it is the skill with which he brings those tried and tested themes to bear that sets him apart. Nowhere is this more apparent than in his love poetry, one of the finest examples of which we are looking at today. There are five distinct sections to this poem. His poetry was often written to pose a question or an argument, either for himself or for the reader to ponder. When he moves from one idea to the next, there is often a line break or stanza shift to accompany it. If we take a look at the first section here, we can see it as the premise of his argument. Since feeling is first, who pays any attention to the syntax of things will never wholly kiss you. E.E. E. Cummings' attitude towards the nature of love is laid bare here. That feeling is first simply means that for him, emotion comes before all else. This priority was always at the core of his work. He wrote and spoke often of how to be a poet was to feel. Here is the man himself explaining exactly that to a group of students in 1955. A lot of people think or believe or know they feel, but that's thinking or believing or knowing, not feeling. 
And poetry is feeling, not knowing, or believing, or thinking. Almost anybody can learn to think or believe or know, but not a single human being can be taught to feel. Why? Because whenever you think or you believe or you know, you're a lot of other people. But the moment you feel, you're nobody but yourself. To explore that theme even further here, he creates a strong opposing pair to test his theory. There is the pure force of emotion tied to nature later in the poem. This is one of Cummings' favorite metaphors. On the other side of this pair is reason, which takes the form of syntax and grammar within the poem. In this first stanza, Cummings claims that those concerned with grammar and the tiny details of things, they who pay attention to the syntax of things, are unworthy or incapable of the depths of true passion. For anyone familiar with Cummings, these are quite self-congratulatory lines. Cummings has posed himself here as the opposite of these calculated rational men who will never wholly kiss the woman of the poem. It seems a very natural fit for Cummings to be a poet in opposition to grammar, as much of his poetry centered around pushing the boundaries of such things. He would often rage against traditional form and any strict definition of what a poem is or should be. He was famed for his complete abandon when it came to the rules of English, and he had a genuine love for changing the poetic form in bold typographic experiments, forcing readers to engage actively in his work or become lost in it. I think academic Roy Tartakovsky put it best when he said, the operative word here is active. Action, process, and movement being prized concepts in Cummings' metaphysics. That desire for readers to engage was one of the driving reasons that Cummings decided to focus on feeling and step away from the often rigid rules of his chosen field. He would, in a sense, hook his reader with an immensity of feeling and compel them to reread to gain a better understanding of what he originally said. The you of the line will never wholly kiss you indicates that the poem is directed at someone in a kind of bizarre romantic Socratic dialogue. It would be safe to assume, given the ubiquity of their presence in Cummings' poetry, that it's a woman. His poems frequently present women in an idealized light, and this poem is no exception, as later lines will attest. The next stanza is a simple couplet which continues the notion that the first introduced and expands on it slightly. Holy to be a fool while spring is in the world. More than just a mere abandonment of rules, love is utter ignorance for them. It invites foolishness over sense. As previously mentioned, spring and flowering are two repeated themes for Cummings in his poetry. They reference a kind of classical Western paganism, one in which spring was the great rejuvenator. This idea really took hold of Cummings in his formative years at Harvard University, 
there is something eternally hopeful and romantic about the season for him. He invokes it here to show just how much of a release love can be. The perspective in the third stanza shifts from descriptions of the external world to the poet's own internal view of things. He is no longer making an argument, but accepting a fact. To be in love is to be a fool. Stanza number three makes it clear that he embraces the loss of logic wholeheartedly. My blood approves, and kisses are a better fate than wisdom. Lady, I swear by all flowers. Don't cry. The best gesture of my brain is less than your eyelids flutter which says. Cummings often speaks of his body as though it were a separate entity or object from his own mind. Here he finds it approves of this fresh spring and foolishness. His body and blood are rising to meet the occasion. He is in some way built for this kind of devil-may-care romance. From here, Cummings completely immerses himself in romantic language. The words and phrases of this stanza are more classical than modernist, as we might traditionally associate with them. He seems to be saying that there are those that might fear foolishness, a terrible thing, and would consider it too great a price to pay for love. But for him, the opposite is true. Kisses are a better faith than wisdom. For what use is wisdom with no hint of passion? The true power of emotion is laid bare in Cummings' plea. Lady, I swear by all flowers. He takes an oath on his favorite symbol. He makes this oath as though she is upset. Perhaps she is worried that he has sacrificed too much by turning his back on intellect. Perhaps she is worried that he will not commit wholly to her. But he is quick to reassure her. The best gesture of my brain is less than your eyelids flutter. Not only is love preferable to reason, but in fact towers over it. This is peak romantic idealization. Academic Alice Rowe Yablin refers to it as the Petrarchian tendency for the speaker to devalue himself in comparison to his lady. It is not the first or last time Cummings will do this in his poetry. This veneration, this deprecation of self, is all done to ensure the woman's comfort and make her fully confident of his feelings towards her. The fourth stanza emphasizes this even further. We are for each other. Then laugh, leaning back in my arms, for life's not a paragraph. There could be nothing wrong in love between two people who seem literally designed for each other. In inviting her to then laugh, leaning back in my arms, he encourages her to give up the crutch of reason and join him in foolishness. Suddenly, they abandon reason for one another. The final line of the fourth stanza shifts quickly in one fluid thought to the fifth. For life's not a paragraph, and death, I think, is no parenthesis. These final two lines are a masterclass in how Cummings manipulates form and syntax to pack a punch in his work. Simultaneously, 
it is a very wry way for Cummings to contradict the central message of his own poem. In choosing to lean back in his arms, both the lover and Cummings himself choose a kind of present moment bliss. The meta-language, grammatical key terms, paragraph and parenthesis are very important to that understanding. One source defines the paragraph as used to help your reader follow the logic of your argument. If we follow this definition, we understand that Cummings is reinforcing his original argument. The true enjoyment of life cannot be found in rigid rules and logic. Life is not for logic. It cannot be seen as a paragraph. But in crafting this direct statement, he is using the language of grammar. And so, a paradox is created. It is not the first time in Cummings' career that love is a paradox, and it is far from the last. The final line, and death, I think, is no parenthesis, has a weight all its own. This is accomplished through its unique spacing, and by the merit of it being the only single line in the poem. All this gives it a unique sense of gravity. It is worth quoting Tartakovsky again. He said that, Among the various punctuation marks, none has been more explored, used and abused by Cummings than parentheses. Overwhelmingly vast majority of Cummings' hundreds of poems include parentheses in any number of forms. Cummings is the unparalleled poet of parentheses. And parentheses are for Cummings an extraordinarily prized poetic device, granting us a unique test case for punctuational appropriation. This rather verbose description is used so that we can be sure that parentheses are not casually mentioned here. They meant something to Cummings. Traditionally, the function of parentheses seemed to say, here it is, if you wish it. It's only an aside. So then, is the information contained in a parentheses truly important? In claiming that death is not a parentheses, I believe that Cummings is telling us that it is a very serious matter indeed. I've always held that Cummings presents these final words as an urgency to both his lover and his reader. Life is not a paragraph and death is not a parenthesis because death and life cannot be separated. To participate in one, life and love, is to be aware of the other. There is an end to all things and if we were to spend our lives entangled in logic and meaning, it would be a great waste indeed. I chose this poem as a massive E.E. E. Cummings fan, but also to showcase how poetry we often write off as overly sentimental or cliched can often harbor untold depths within their stanzas. This poem is a grand appeal for romance that ends with a little existential bent towards ensuring people pursue what is valuable to them, or at least valuable to Cummings. The evocation of genuine emotion from a reader was a lifelong pursuit for the poet, one that he believed was essential within his time. 
Academic Emily Essert put it best when she wrote, Cummings overstates the case for feeling in this poem. It is a kind of compensation for a culture in which, as he sees it, an overemphasis on knowledge, among other things, has left people incapable of genuine emotional responses. Cummings' poems are intended to speak to the reader at a more visceral, sub-rational level upon first reading, eliciting a strong emotional response. But this response occurs primarily upon a first reading. His poems then beg to be re-read in order to be understood. And it is mostly upon rereading that Cummings challenges the reader's intellect. Cummings wanted contemplation and clarity to come from his poetry. And to my mind, few of his poems achieve that goal quite like this one. Thank you very much for listening. There's been a long hiatus for this podcast, but I'm happy to say that I'll be committing to a new episode every two weeks from now on. This week's episode was produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode was composed by Scott Buckley and used under Creative Commons license. A link to his work and all socials relating to this podcast are down below in the description. If you'd like to know more about the critics and academics I quoted in this podcast, or if you'd like to take a look at my sources, you'll find the show notes linked below as well. If you've enjoyed this podcast or know someone who would, please consider leaving me a review wherever you listen or sharing it directly with a friend. Join me in two weeks' time where I'll be taking a look at the work of Rachel Long. Thank you very much again for listening.